This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Dan Carlin from Hardcore History and Common Sense. Thank you for being on the show. Really appreciate you coming on. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. I've been a big fan of uh, Hardcore History forever. Uh, I guess it started 2006. Is that right? You know, I don't actually have an answer to that. It's all a blur. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's been a while. And I think late last year, I was, I was sort of saying, oh, not enough. Not enough hardcore history. I know this is the complaint you hear all the time. There's not enough hardcore history. I just want more. And and I said, oh, I'll try his other show. And um, I really like the other show. Um, I'm not an American. I live in Canada. But I appreciate, you know, the analysis. I'm saying, finally, somebody's making talking sense, you know. Um, I guess common sense. What, that's, what are, a lo- that's a loaded term too. Everybody's using it, is. it which make, makes you feel a little bit like if I could have changed the name retroactively, I might have. But you know, we we were saying common sense pretty much after Thomas Paine, so we're stuck with it. Copyright mm-hmm. speaking, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm an American, by the way. Um, live here in the United States, and uh, I love that show very much. I, I greatly appreciate it. Um, and and one question I have for you, you know, in in science fiction, there's a lot of stories about. Um, how reality is perceived differently through from other people, and one of like the problems. What's that? Say again. Like Hashimoto effect, where or or once on Gilligan's Island, they had that great episode where everybody sees this one event, but you get to see it through each different character's eyes. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So that's a problem that I have. You know, as an American, you know, I I have no clue if what I'm getting is true. You know, if you watch Fox News and then you watch MSNBC, if you watch the same story being covered, you know, you're getting two almost completely different things. And, uh, you know, how, how do you, I guess, how do you feel confident that, you know, what you're talking about, you know, you're passionate about what you talk about. How do you feel confident that what you've got in your hands is, is what's real? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I remember when I was uh, when I used to work on the assignment desk in Los Angeles, and it was at ABC, and they had all these, which is an American news network. We had uh, all the TVs lining the wall, and they were all tuned to all of the competition stations. And you got to watch, you know, when the evening news would come on. You know, at one point, it was my job to watch all of these different stations. And they used to have a saying that, you know, if uh, if we have a story that they don't have. That's a great day for us. If they have a story we don't have, it's a bad day for us. And we, if we have the same stories, at least you know it's a it's a C average. At least we're all okay. Mm-hmm. And you could watch the different ways that the different stations would cover this thing side by side. So when I started doing um, political talk radio, which is kind of what the Common Sense podcast grew out of, the way we figured it was, I was I always had my own opinion. I was an opinionated guy, but I think the way to be fair was to make sure as much as you can that you brought up the other opinions that you knew were out there and examined them as well. So you still knew you were getting someone's opinion, but at least you knew that you were examining some of the other points of view as well, as fairly as you could. Obviously, you're biased. But but so the, one of the things we try to do anyway is bring up some of the contradictions to what I'm saying as I'm saying them, and we try to address that stuff too. It's the best you can do, I guess. Okay, so the best you can do is just try and try and cover every aspect that you can find. 
unless you want to have a guest on who represents the opposite viewpoint or an, or a differing viewpoint. And the problem with that is sometimes it can be done well if you do it in more of a 1960s black and white, everybody smoking cigarettes, old style talk show format. Otherwise, if you do anything like the way they do it today, it just turns into a kind of a bickering argument, don't you think? Oh yeah, and yeah, you're not kidding for sure. <laughs> yeah, there, there's. I think there's. Uh, what sort of happened is they they took it took that too far, and now that they've got you know uh, having two different people means it's balanced, but. What about the fact that both of them are wrong, right? There's, that's well, often... It's funny you say that. As a news reporter, we used to do what was called defensive reporting, you know, derisively called defensive reporting. And what that meant was, let's say you were talking about, you know, cutting down forests. Once upon a time, you might have gotten some experts who can give you some nuanced opinion, but it was hard to give nuanced opinion in the short little period of time you had allotted to a story, which is usually like a minute and a half to three minutes. So it became much easier to say, okay, I'm going to go get a radical environmentalist, then I'm going to go get a radical person from the complete opposite side, and we will call that balanced, even though the vast, you know, 80% of the rest of the people don't fall into either one of those camps. And I think that's how the news turns things into extreme viewpoints rather than anything in the sort of moderate middle because the moderate middle is nuanced and there's gray areas and it's certainly not as, you know, they used to call it hot, which just means contentious. Mm-hmm. It, there's, there, I think that's the, the key word that's missing from any sort of uh, television coverage of, of reality, uh, at, least, at least coming out of the States. I, 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 I like BBC broadcasts every time i see one i i think wow that's really good i guess you know npr uh, npr does a, a fairly good job they they just don't have the range to cover a lot of this stuff and uh the pbs programs the, there's there are there are lots of good exceptions i should say but um just the the fact that there's no nuance it's all talking points and you know everybody's covering this the same events and they just have different a slightly different camera angle or maybe not they just have the same one well, you, when you bring up talking points, I think that's the key. Nothing, nothing is so tiring as to be able to figure out what the person you're hearing is going to say before they say it. Uh, and I think that's what became so deadly boring about those shows like Crossfire and, you know, the one guy on the right and the one person on the left. And, you know, before they open their mouth, you know what they're going to say. And not only is that boring and not good to listen to, but it's not illuminating at all. I mean, you know, why would you watch something, you know, it's like watching that same TV show for the fifth or sixth time and you know all the dialogue, but it's not even as interesting as that. So, uh, but, but, you know, even the BBC is not as good as they used to be. And even places like NPR and PBS, they do a better job. But, uh, you know, if I was a hardcore right wing, you know, neoconservative kind of guy, I wouldn't feel like NPR was doing my viewpoint justice. So that may be a human thing where it's tough to do that. I mean, maybe the format hasn't been invented where you could really do a good job of that. Uh, well, do you, I mean, I've been reading your your bulletin boards, uh, uh, the forums, and I, you know, you talk about on the, on the podcast about how you, you get emails, right? You get emails, people are complaining. Um, I, I'm not sure that you could ever put up a, any kind of point that somebody wouldn't have a problem with but just because they have a problem with it doesn't mean they're right you know it, oftentimes they're coming at it from a very ideological point of view you know it's not that we can't uh agree on the facts it's just that those facts are very disturbing i don't think you should be talking about those facts and you did a show not not so long ago on uh, the wikileaks um journal you know the why the wikileaks journalism is is so shocking is because we're not used to having 
having real journalism of that kind anymore. Well, I mean, not even not even real journalism per se. Understand, I get into trouble with the emails mainly because I I come from things from a you know I always say my political position is sort of Martian, and that's <laughs> that's going to upset people right off the bat. So I'm used to the negative emails, and I think people tend to write when they get really upset. Um, and they think, okay, Dan thinks just like I do, and then I throw them some curve, and it's like they've been jilted by, you know, a girlfriend or something or a boyfriend, and they feel, you know, personally insulted. At the same time, I always feel like I'm one of those people, and you know, maybe maybe this is my viewpoint, the Rashomon or the Gilligan's Island viewpoint, but I always feel like if I could sit down with you over a cup of coffee, most, I mean, ninety percent of people are going to, we're going to find a nice piece of common ground and. You're going to think I'm a normal individual who uh, who's rational in thinking, even if I'm terribly wrong in your eyes. It's a lot harder to do that in a podcast where there's not as much give and take. It, it, it amazes me actually how how good a job you do of uh, in the podcast of of sort of uh, it is a monologue, right? You've you've got Ben in the background. Uh, he never says a word, but you know you 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 know you've got a unspoken dialogue with him, but you've also got this. Um, ability to yeah to to say well wait a second I could be wrong here and then you t- you sort of backtrack and talk about what what it would mean if this was true right but I think the the whole thing that makes it work so well is is you're like you were saying you're looking at it from the Martian perspective uh, it's it's the historical perspective you say what would this look like in a hundred years would we go back and look at what's going on what are the big picture implications on this um, is that is that is that the Martian point of view that you're looking at it from, say, another piece of history? Well, we like to throw the history, and I, I don't think, you know, everybody, um, everybody formulates their mental way of looking at the world through their own prism, and my prism has always been history, and I, I have a hard time seeing how anyone else could organize the world in their mind if they didn't do it that way, but that's kind of, you know, that's how we all are in the way we organize things. When I look at the show, I always try to think, you know, I was an old uh, fan of comic books when I was a kid, and I used to have um, a whole comic book series devoted to the idea of what if. Mm-hmm. Historian Neil Ferguson's given a great educational, scientific-sounding name to the what if phenomenon. He calls it counterfactual history. But that, to me, has always been a great tool. For example, in the show we're about to release, here's a little, you know, appetizer, mm-hmm. but in the show please. You know, I just look at our political system and I wonder how different the voting would be and how different a society we would have here in the United States if there were no money impacting the political system at all. Because the old line is in this country that it's okay to take all this money because it really doesn't affect the political system. All these people who vote for what they vote for, we're going to vote for that anyway. And people who like that position give them money. And so what they're basically saying is, listen, if there were no money in the political system at all, it would be just like this. And so I think one of the things we try to do on the program that's coming up is say, really, you know, what if there was no money in the political system? Would it really look like this? And I think that always kind of takes the normal political conversation and sort of tilts it sideways a bit. And that's what I mean when I say, you know, kind of Martian approach. Yeah, there's somebody, uh, somebody has a show, their tagline is the no spin zone. Um, I think your your shows like the are the no talking points zone or you know just ignore the talking points and and that's why when you do do a topic I always say oh I didn't expect that um, it's just n- not that expected but um, one of the one of the recent shows you did was on uh, the UN and sort of the toothlessness toothlessness of the UN um, 
And that that got me to thinking about um, the difference between uh, Canadian-style government and U.S.-style government. Uh, we've got our head of state is the, the queen, and your head of state is the president. The president has executive power, uh, but he also the, has the office of the presidency. So a criticism of the president is a criticism of not just the guy who's doing the job of running the government, but also a criticism of the government and the United States. So it's unpatriotic to diss the president. Uh, nobody disses the queen because we just don't think about her very much. Um, but we all diss the prime minister, and nobody has a problem with that. We kick the prime ministers out regularly. <laughs> um, the Isn't the UN kind of uh, a way of shuffling the power out of the hands of, you know, it's just the United States doing something, or it's just China doing something, or it's just the, the you know, the oligarchical countries, you know, that won World War II doing something. Isn't it? Isn't the UN a, a way of sort of making that separate uh, head of state separate from those individual countries that are on the Security Council? And doesn't that get, that doesn't that give it a, a usefulness in the same way that the Canadian uh, the Queen of Canada prevents us from uh, it may, might not make a lot of sense unless you live here but um, we we don't everybody talks crap about the Prime Minister right it's very unpatriotic I think most people don't like to hurt talk bad about the prime uh, about the president you, you following what I'm saying well, I, I think you got two different strands of thoughts. I know just where you're coming from, though, because we had talked about uh, it was something a political science professor told me back in college, and he was from Germany, and he 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 was trying, you know, it was almost that same sort of Martian approach where he looked at the American system as an outsider and diagrammed what he thought the flaws were in a way that an American never would have noticed, um, and and he had determined that one of the things that screwed the American system up was that we were combining two traditional separate roles in most governments into a single role into the president. He said right. most European countries will have uh, a chancellor or they'll call it a president sometimes and that person is the ceremonial figurehead of the country and then they'll have a prime minister who's more of the bean counter, right? And the prime minister is the one you elect and as you say you slam in the press and everything and the other guy is the one who goes or the other gal is the one who goes to the state funerals and looks like you think the country looks like. He said, you know, John Wayne would be your president or chancellor, and then you could have some, you know, bean counter that you would never think you would, you know, some guy with big spectacles and, you know, maybe very bookish and not looking very much like uh, the soul of the nation. That guy could actually exactly. run political affairs. And he said, by combining those two roles, you end up getting one or the other instead of both. And he goes, John Wayne might not be a very good bean counter and, you know, vice versa. The UN thing is a little different. The UN is something, oh, and by the way, I want to disagree with you about criticizing the president in this country, not being patriotic. That's pretty much the national sport around here. Um, you know, criticizing the president. <laughs> uh, of late, yes. Of late. That's, no, and forever, that's what we do. Um, you can go look at the day President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, and that day uh, there were right-wing groups with a picture of Kennedy's face on a poster that they were hanging on all the trees and telephone poles that said, Wanted for Treason. So, I mean, that's a long-standing American sport. Um, the UN is a different question. 
the UN is one thing on paper and another thing in reality. So when we talk about what you know what the UN could be or what it's supposed to be or theoretically is, that's a very different thing from what it is. Um, the best way to look at the UN in my mind is go look at the historical underpinnings of trying to create some sort of body of international law over time. I mean, there's all kinds of things. The Congress of Vienna after the Napoleonic Wars is a good example where, you know, you would have, usually they come out of terrible wars. And the wars will happen and people will get together afterwards and they'll say, never again. We've got to create something that prevents this terrible conflict that just happening you know World War one World War two the Napoleonic War we can't have this again so we'll create some international body that can sort of tell states what to do because it's always perceived that individual states or rulers get out of hand and there's no national body that can tell a state what to do no international body so they're always trying to create some sort of system where if one country gets out of hand the rest of the countries can you know sort of kick them in line. The problem is, is that the countries that are strong enough to put these kinds of organizations together don't want anyone telling them what to do. So they always want to have a little bit of an edge. That's what the National Security Council is in the UN. Sure. People who get all high and mighty with me when I get upset with the UN don't seem to want to admit the fact that the whole thing is rigged in the favor of the big powers to begin with. I mean, if you get yourself a National Security Council veto just because you're China, well, you know, what does Japan get? Japan's a pretty influential and important country, but they don't get anything like that. Um, the reason China gets one is they were part of the winning side of the Second World War, and they've benefited from that ever since. The reason the UN bothers me so much is because we pretend like it's the UN's job to do a bunch of things that they don't do, and because it's their job, no one else takes responsibility for it. Let's say we have a um, genocide in Rwanda. Well, if I say, whose job is it to handle the genocide in Rwanda, the first thing we're going to think of is, well, that sounds like a job for the UN, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. But the UN doesn't send armies in to stop people from killing each other. And, and, and if they did, somebody on the Security Council would veto it. Therefore, it's nobody's responsibility. Therefore, the killing continues. So in my mind, it almost becomes a cover that if there was no UN, someone would have to do something about that. I always, uh, uh, I always hear from people, they always say, well... You know, if you didn't have the UN, you wouldn't have UNICEF, and UNICEF does great work. And I always say, well, yeah, but UNICEF is like pennies on the dollar in terms of what the UN spends. Why not turn the whole thing into UNICEF, and then the whole thing can be doing good for people instead of paying parking tickets for people at the UN building in New York, you know? Yeah, I, I totally see that. I, I'm not – I actually didn't think of the, um, the that as a, your your explanation for – uh, that I, was that in the the UN show. I, I was thinking more along the lines of when you when you've got a um, a situation with a country that wants to doesn't want to back down, but you know they don't want to go to war with the United States. They don't they don't want to go to war with Russia. And so if they can go to the UN, you know both sides go to the UN in a last minute ditch you know attempt, and then they get this overwhelming majority you know the security council agrees you know new resolution um that allows that government to say well what could we do with the u.n you know it's allowed allows them to uh save face and back away you know we have the whole world against us i'm not sure how many times this has actually happened but let's look at it this way though other than the united states what time has any other country in the u.n 
pushed any agenda and then gone forward and enforced it. It's the United States that pushes um, UN policy. For example, you know, when war happened in Korea, that was the only war I believe that was ever fought under you know an actual UN flag. You know, they carried the UN flag into battle. Yep. Um, but it was the U.S. pushing that. And if the it, see, imagine it this way: imagine the U.S. saying, "You know what? We don't agree with that," and the rest of the world goes, "We don't care that you don't agree with that. We're going to do it anyway." And you know, Russia or China or Great Britain will lead this crusade, and you can just stay out of it. That's never happened. That that right there is kind of evidence that the UN becomes something of a tool for the United States when it wants cover. You know, maybe we want to kick Saddam Hussein out of Iraq, and we don't want to make it look like it's an overt act of UN, you know, of U.S. imperialism. So we get the UN to pass some security resolutions, and we enforce them. But if the UN passes security resolutions against an ally of ours, and we don't like it, we don't. We not only do we not help, but nothing gets done. I mean. Places like Israel, and this is controversial, but they've had UN resolutions against them. Nothing happens because the U.S. doesn't want it to happen. That's a good example of how the UN becomes a tool for the great powers, rather than this, you know, um, idealistic idea of having a world superbody to prevent global catastrophes and wars like the Second World War. Well, the the U- UN resolutions against Israel don't have an effect uh, if if nobody's enforcing them, but. Um, it, it is an issue in local, you know, in Canadian politics. You know, if if um, something like the not that long ago there was an incident uh, with some ships going into Gaza, um, that that's a becomes a political issue in Canada. You know, Canada supporting uh, Israel, uh, which MPs are going to line up in favor, which are going to line up against. It it becomes a tool in the argument against support if. There's UN resolutions against, right? And sure, but what does that, it mean? But what does it mean? It, it means dollars yeah. and cents when it comes to the budget, right? If you're if you're if you're sending aid to Israel, are you going to actually send that? I mean, it it it's not military intervention. It's not uh, you know necessarily a uh, a uh, economic embargo, but it's there. There is some effect. I don't mean to single out Israel. That that just was the first thing that no. popped in my head because. Well, it's a recent the, one. Yeah, because the U.S. doesn't like that, and so when, when the U.S. doesn't like something, the U.N. has a hard time getting anything done. I mean, how long did the war in uh, the former Yugoslavia go on, and the killing in in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina go on um, before anything got done? And the reason something finally got done is an American president said, okay, we'll take an interest, and all of a sudden the U.N. had troops and bombers and planes, and that's what it takes, and that's the thing that no one will give up to create any sort of a real international body is to have a real sort of international army. So the UN is really dependent upon the great powers, and really, if you look at history since the Second World War, really dependent on the U.S. If there was no UN, one wonders, um, you know, whether the U.S. would have done a bunch of the things that are controversial in foreign policy that we've done. But it provides wonderful cover for that. So, I mean, I like the idea of the UN in concept. I just don't think, if you look at the reality of the situation, that it's turned out to be much more than a cover for the great powers. Yeah, I, I think I think it is a cover for the great powers, but but no no UN would probably be um, you know more overt. I mean, a, a lot of the um, a lot of the support that you know Canadians won't give support to uh, every U.S. mission, right? We didn't go to Vietnam. We went to Korea. We didn't go to um, uh, Iraq, but we went to Afghanistan, right? If it's if it's a NATO operation, it's it you know we're we're in NATO, we go. Um, if it's a uh, 
unilateral operation, there's no support in Canada for it, right? You have to have the UN support. If there had been UN support uh, for uh, Iraq, which they tried to get, the Canadians would have been in Iraq. Um, I think it was a good thing that they, they didn't get it because it was turned into a big fiasco. But um, it, it, that that uh, that legitimacy of an outer body, even though it is controlled by the Security Council ultimately, um, is able to lend credence to uh, inter- internal Canadian politics to advance. You know, uh, on a non-unilateral front. You know, we're very worried about acting unilaterally. We don't want to do that. We'd just rather... Well, you know, do it either. That's the, that's the thing that, that, again, the U.N. providing cover. When does the U.S. act unilaterally? I mean... Well, in, we, in the case of Iraq, that'd be an example. No, we had... If you go and look at... Uh, well, the we, British, I guess, were... were the well, well, the polls, I mean, you know... Uh, it, was, there, it was... It was a... Uh, yeah, that's good. But the point is, is that is that if the U.N. acted unilaterally, except in places that are considered to be our backyard, I mean, we acted unilaterally in Panama... And places like that, but otherwise, it's always done under the guise of some. I mean, the Vietnam War was fought under the guise of uh, of CETO, um, you know, and there were and there were countries like uh, South Korea fighting there. So the U.S. is very concerned with making sure that it looks like it's not just us, and the U.N. provides a way to do that, or at least. See, you brought up NATO as a perfect example. NATO was formed to stop the Soviet Union from rumbling through Europe and you know all the way to the Atlantic. Um, now the NATO forces are involved in all sorts of places that were never part of the treaty agreement. It just became an expansion of the situation. And believe me, the U.S. Use, uses NATO as a tool the same way we use the U.N. as a tool. Yeah, um, it, it is a tool, most definitely. But but it's a tool that people, you know, uh, Can- Canadian governments committed to leaving Afghanistan by 2011. Uh, um if can can they convince people to stay longer? Uh, you know, can the government get reelected if they if they you know commit to staying longer? Probably not. Um, it, you know what? It has to be sort of. There's a huge amount of respect for the UN in Canada, even though it is a tool of the you know the five Security Council members plus whoever's added to it this month. You know that 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 ability to harness. Uh, a, a global, it, even if it's not, uh, you know, it's a toothless, it's a toothless tool. But its toothlessness may may still have an effect. It, you know, do, do at that, least in do Canada. That, do that what if game that I like to play. Mm-hmm. So, imagine if the UN weren't toothless, and imagine if there was no Security Council, and either every country had one vote, or one of the complaints you hear about that is that you know why should China with those you know millions and a billion people have the same vote as some small country. So base it on, uh, uh, like we do the House of Representatives in our country, you get uh, a representative for every million people you have or whatever. Imagine if it were really fair and democratic and, and, and how different would the, and had teeth, how different would the world be? I always like to play the game that way. It would, it would be, uh, you know, a war between the United States yeah, and the UN or right. <laughs> Russia versus Russia versus the UN, and and it, it it's it, it would play out exactly like that. But you know, if 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 everybody pulled out, that's what would happen. It, it, yeah, <laughs> very much so. And and if you want if you want it to exist with teeth, I think it's not going to happen just because of you know who, nobody's going to commit their soldiers to uh, fighting under the banner of another country 
especially one that uh, you know they don't feel personally connected to. But you just um, hit the nail on the head. Nobody wants to give up sovereignty, and yet that's the whole idea behind something like the UN, which is why it's it's flawed from you know the initial germ. If no one's going to give up sovereignty, the UN can't work. But no one will give up sovereignty because well, I mean that's why countries exist, right? And what American would vote to give? Um, you know, their right to make a decision over where their country goes to some higher entity? And the answer is few Americans. And yet, if you interviewed those same Americans and said, you know, what do you think about a UN? They'd say, oh, I think it's great. So, I mean, they don't, they don't see the contradiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Yes, yes. Hey, I was um, kind of changing the subject. I was uh, fascinated in, in your last common sense. You were talking kind of about, I, I, I don't know if you were really kind of trying to predict the future a little bit, but uh, the the increase in the uncut, unspun footage, um, things like what WikiLeaks posted, and you said that that might um, spur fundamental change. I was wondering if you'd expound on that a little bit. Um, I always, you know, as as a news guy, we used to believe that that showing people stuff, I and mean, we used to sit there and have knockdown, drag out fights over showing footage, and it could be on the big stage, like showing what war is really like, or, I mean, even in local news, showing the effects of a drunk driving car accident to people, in stark terms, we used to argue, was powerful in ways that no words could convey. And so I think maybe people who, who come from a news background have a, have a bias, you know, ingrown, that we want to show footage, and showing what war is really like had a huge effect on this country during the Vietnam War. It had such an effect that the people who were angry that we stopped the Vietnam War or that we lost the Vietnam War felt that there was too much of an impact. You can go, there's all sorts of great reads and and magazine articles and policy studies where many people felt that the public being able to see war footage as we saw in Vietnam had a negative effect on the U.S.'s ability to conduct operations that a lot of people think we have to conduct. So they thought, well, we're going to restrict that footage. And when the Reagan administration came into power in 1981, they were elected in 80, um, they clamped down on press coverage. It started in Grenada. um, And the coverage never, I mean, it just stayed clamped down, where you were allowed to show war, you know, as long as the military guy was holding your hand and the footage was... You know, of the you weren't allowed to show the realities of war. You could show the night scope vision. You could show bombs exploding in city, but you couldn't show the stuff we used to show in Vietnam, where you'd see little children running away from a napalm attack on fire. Or there's a great, uh, you know, we reporters love to look at the. Uh, there was a great interview. Uh, uh, I guess it was an Associated Press reporter conducted while our troops were in a firefight. And they're shooting over this wall, and every time a soldier comes down from shooting to reload his weapon, the reporter sticks the microphone in his face and says, so how do you feel here? How's it going? <laughs> in some sense, it makes you laugh, but in another sense, I mean, man, that's what it really was. And that was the sort of stuff that was perceived by those who want to see us able to conduct what they call a more muscular foreign policy. They saw that as undercutting the war effort. You have not seen that sort of coverage since. When the WikiLeaks thing came out, I think WikiLeaks, because they're not American, made a fundamental um, misunderstanding. They, they felt that Americans were going to be so upset when they saw this footage because some uh, reporters were killed by Apache helicopters, and they yeah. thought we would be just so upset that these reporters were killed. That's you can't not kill what, reporters. Yeah, that's not what screwed up Americans, though. What screwed up Americans were 
we hadn't seen what Apache helicopters shooting up the ground did to people. Um, in Vietnam, you would have seen that. In our country, we've been so subjected to approved uh, footage that doesn't show that kind of stuff that when people actually saw, I mean, you, you were hearing these interesting people who were saying things like, well, that doesn't even look fair. And you just sit there and go, well, wait a minute, what do you think an Apache helicopter does to people? Um, my attitude's always been that if you, if you feel like you can do this war, you ought to be able to look at it. And if you can't look at it, maybe it's not worth fighting. And so that's the argument, I think, that comes with WikiLeaks. Is I, you know, I, I think that WikiLeaks is going to go overboard, and they're going to release things they shouldn't release, and all kinds of things like that. The problem is, is that our government has gone so far overboard in the other direction that if you're going to err in one direction, err on the side of reality. And what, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by uh, overboard? Uh, you know, uh, what what could they release that would be too much? Because, uh, you know, the 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 guy's being hunted right now. Apparently, he's 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 uh, on a target list of some kind. The founder of WikiLeaks. Um, what could they release that would you know really make the really make them mad? I mean, it, it would it have to be, you know, battle plans or something like that? Yeah, I, I always have a theory about secrecy, especially in our country, but it's, most countries are this way because human beings are the ones who control secrecy. Um, a lot of times we use secrecy to hide uh, ineptitude or corruption or things that we know the voters wouldn't like if they found out about, but let's understand, we can, we can disagree about how much of the stuff should be kept secret, but all governments have something that you know the people in the country would say, hey, you know that's the stuff that should be kept secret. I like to think it's about ten percent, based on no evidence at all, um, <laughs> of what we keep secret. Um, and so, so if you actually went into that realm of that ten percent that should be kept secret, the sort of stuff that would get your troops on the ground killed, or uh, I'll give you an example. Um, supposedly, footage exists of what was going on in places like Abu Ghraib prison. Um, and it's horrible stuff you hear about. I mean, uh, the little the little um, Seymour Hirsch, who's an investigative reporter here in the States, says that it shows, um, I mean, I don't even mean to talk about this, but the question came up, it shows some of our people in Abu Ghraib raping Iraqi boys on video while relatives watched. Um, that's the sort of stuff that really conflicts a person, because in one sense, if you want to show reality, you have to release that. In another sense, you have to say to yourself, okay, what sort of an effect would that have on the whole effort in Iraq, all the money that's been spent, all the people who've died on all sides, and, and would it really help the discussion to have that released? So, I mean, I think there are some things you can legitimately say. Is that is that the same as showing what war is really like? I don't know. Um, but I think those are the kind of things where if WikiLeaks got a hold of that and released it, you might say, okay, what are the positives of releasing something like that and what are the negatives? And maybe, maybe in that case, the negatives outweigh the positives. Or the, the lack of anything other than sort of showing, hey, look at what you did. Don't you feel terrible? I don't know that any reform comes of that, but maybe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, do you, I mean, that, that kind of thing will only increase in the future, right, uh, due to... You know, everyone's got a video camera, you know, and everybody's got an internet connection, you know, as everybody gets those. Um, things like that will be released all the time, don't you think? Well, it depends. I mean, uh, I, I think that, I, you know, it depends on how conspiratorial you want to get about it, because there's a lot of people who would make the case to you that, that what you're seeing right now are governments that are getting a little upset with exactly how free the mechanisms of distribution, as they're called, have become. The Internet's a perfect example, and you're starting to see, I think, people at least talking about 
how dangerous it is to have I mean, WikiLeaks. That's the whole debate coming up. I mean, imagine if we were having a WikiLeaks, and instead of being 2010, it's 1969. How do you release that information? The um, the, the the elements of distribution are going to be newspapers or uh, television networks and all this stuff, and those are chokehold points for any government that wants to stop information from being out. A government can go to a place like the New York Times and say, this is a national security issue, don't release this, or you'll be sorry. And the New York Times will get together and say, oh man, do we really want to start a war with the government? With the internet, WikiLeaks just has a channel directly to the public sphere, which I think is 99% fantastic, but the government doesn't. Um, so when you say, you know, I mean, you can take a video on your phone, how do you get it to people? And that's becoming the big issue. Right now, you can, you can just send it to them via email. There are governments that are not so happy with that. And Australia right now, I believe, is looking into uh, restrictions. China, of course, has been looking into restrictions for a long time. Um, the powers that be are uncomfortable not having chokeholds over the release of information. And WikiLeaks is sort of highlighting the whole issue. Mm, yeah, and I... I know as you as you talk, it occurs to me that uh, misinformation could be passed just as easily. Sure, um, propaganda, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, people are pretty darn good at Photoshop. I mean, they can pass anything off in a photo, well, time, you know. And by the time something like that gets debunked, maybe it's too late, seeped into the international consciousness. That's the other thing. You want to talk about what I love about podcasting? How cool is it to have an international program? I mean, I used to do a, a local talk radio show, and if I was talking about Iran and I made some stupid misstatement about it, you know, I might hear from someone living in my community who's from Iran who would call me up. But when I make a misstatement today, people in that country, I mean, I'll get barraged with emails. And in one sense, you think, oh, God, man, that makes my job so much tougher. But in another sense, that is really cool. I mean, and, and it's not ephemeral. Like, you know, you're, you're radio broadcasting, those tapes are if they're recorded, are going in a trunk, nobody's ever going to listen to them again. Except for you, maybe, if you're making a clip show. But you know what's interesting about that? I kind of feel bad um, for people who are breaking into the business now because of that. Um, because, exa it's exactly what you said, I have right down below me, about 15 feet in my basement, are boxes and boxes of cassette tapes from my days on the radio. But when I go back and listen to them, I can hear all these things that I know now are mistakes and sound terrible, and I'm just so grateful that stuff isn't preserved <laughs> in digital stone somewhere. You know, I got to get my mistakes out of the way in a way that people don't even remember. Some poor kids starting out today, um, every mistake they ever make is going to come back and haunt them years later because someone on the internet's going to have those digital files, and so... Um, I, I think it was nice. It's great to have this now, but it was also great in the old days to learn your craft when when there weren't a lot of people listening, or or when you know it didn't come back to haunt you later. So, but I, we're all in that same boat, though, right? So if you've got crap on me, I've got crap on you because everybody's growing up. You know, it, there won't the only people who won't have that is somebody who's going to be you know so bland as to say nothing. Well, no, but if, I mean, people who you know, it's it's like learning your craft. Um, you know, if you get anybody who starts off is going to make a year's worth or two years worth of mistakes. I can't listen to shows I did a year ago. I mean, I listen to shows I did a year ago and go, oh, man, if I did that today, I'd redo the whole thing. I mean, so I'm critical that way. Um, I think it, it was nice to get all the mistakes and the learning curve and stuff out of the way in a way that doesn't, you know, I mean, I mean, I think it's an advantage for me because I was around when the technology started. You're going to think I'm some great 
uh, podcasting guru because there's no mistakes of me online, but it was just the luck of, of coming around when I did. And you're right, everybody else who's younger than I am who started off digitally is going to have all those things. You know, Peter Jennings would have had all of his mistakes uh, on television digitally recorded so you could play them back anytime he sounded too high and mighty. So, yeah, I, I think people who got to learn their craft before the digital age were at an advantage. We're going to look a lot better than we really are. <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to throw a couple things towards you. Um, see see what sticks. Um, I wanted to give you this quote, uh, which I always I, I always think about um, when I'm listening to Common Sense. Uh, Canada's 15th Prime Minister is uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Uh, he was governed for about 12 years, not not contiguously, um, and he he said once, uh, uh, being America's neighbor was like quote, sleeping with an elephant. No matter how friendly and even-tempered the beast, we are affected by every twitch and grunt. That was a great line. <laughs> I, 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 I always, you know, I talk to Scott. He lives in Idaho. I live in British Columbia. And he says, he says, um, he says something on the news. And I, I, I know it. I know everything that's going on in the States, except for on the local level. You know, I don't know the governors. But I, nationally, I know everything that he knows that's going on um, but Scott, do you know who the Prime Minister of Canada is? Oh man, you're putting me on the spot. Nobody knows. Yeah, I and don't. It's it's because it's because it's like you know who the Queen is, though, right? Right. Uh, that 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 dif- difference is that you know we are tiny and you are huge, but we we live in reaction to you. Mm-hmm. You know what, though, mm-hmm. I don't think you're the only one because I remember no. asking. A Dutch listener once, why the heck he cared about Common Sense at all, uh, the show, and he said, because the United States, he, I think he put it, he said, decisions made in Washington, D.C. affect my life more than the decisions made in my nation's capital. And I thought, wow, you know, as an American, I guess I didn't even think about that. Um, but he's got a point. Um and, and that's and that's how dominant the U.S. is right now. I mean, you know, when you talk about my Martian political philosophy, it's a little contradictory to what most Americans would want. Or maybe that's changing, but I'd love it if our decisions didn't have such an impact on all of your lives. Um, if for no other reason than, do you know how much money it costs our country to have that kind of influence? I mean, I think we have... Um, I think if you look at our foreign budget in terms, and you have to include the military in the foreign budget, we spend a, a fortune of American taxpayer dollars making sure we're this dominant, and I'm not sure I care that much about uh, influencing uh, a, a Dutch guy's life as much as we do. So, um, But I mean, I totally understand, and Canada gets all that feeling that that Dutch gentleman had on steroids. Yeah, and that's amazing. I mean, even more amazing to me is, you know, as I've grown up, I've learned, you know, from Jesse and others about this influence. And um, as I grew up, I'm 42 years old. As I grew up, there were, I mean, when I watched the news, the only foreign news that was ever spoken about was where we had a troop somewhere. You know, we grew up knowing absolutely nothing about any other country other than the United States. Well, you know what drives me crazy about about that aspect of our country, the, the troop aspect? And we talk about that a lot. Um, is we have, I mean, because to me, if you want to talk about what's wrong with the American system, it's the fact that Americans have zero, and I mean zero, control over that part of our policy. We have no control over where troops are, if troops are somewhere. 
our foreign policy is so disengaged from the American people, we couldn't change it if we want to. And what people always say is, well, you can always vote for another person. You go and look at the people in these national elections and you tell me how different their viewpoints are. People thought, for example, when they voted for Barack Obama, I mean, nobody has run on a more change-oriented agenda in my lifetime. And he was talking about tons of change. And you look what happens when he gets into office and he becomes, you know, no offense to anyone who's a huge fan, but he becomes just like all the other ones. His policy might as well be the Bush policy in terms of foreign policy. The Bush policy was a lot more like the Clinton policy than people like to admit. Um, there's a continuity in American foreign policy that seems to defy anything Americans want to do about it. And I tend to hit on that a lot because that to me is an emperor has no clothes moment. When you realize how powerless you are in that realm, a whole lot of dominoes start tumbling in my mind where we say, okay, are we really in control of this system like we're supposed to be? And if you want to talk about what the pillars of the Common Sense podcast are, that's got to be one of the main things we hang our hat on. Cool. Uh, I, I want to ask you about uh, first contact. Uh, this is a, a concept that comes in uh, science fiction quite a lot. Um, and I, I always think, of, you know, every first contact story is actually, it's a history story. There, there is one story I was talking to Scott about uh, prior to the podcast start when he's saying, you know, we're a science fiction uh, website. What are we talking to Dan Carlin for? <laughs> and I was saying, Scott, it, it's all, it all fits together. There's a story called uh, Despoilers of the Golden Empire by Randall Garrett. And it was released uh, in a, a sort of a April Fool's Day issue of uh, Science Fiction Magazine in the 1950s. Um, and it tells the story of, of an explorer uh, from a, uh, an old planet who is headed off to conquer a new planet where there's a primitive culture head, headed by a god, god king... Uh, and they are after the universal uh, power source for everything, which is gold, apparently, in this universe. And uh, it, it all flows along. You know, he's, he's, got his, uh, he's got his troops with him, and he's got uh, members of the uh, Universal Assembly. And, uh, and then the final line of the story is, and thus died Francisco Pizarro, conqueror yeah. of Peru. <laughs> I was just going to say, it sounds a lot like that, yeah. Right. Um, so... You know, I, I was reading not too long ago on uh, Wikipedia about this, uh, just uh, all the wars that have happened in Korea and the first contact between the United States and and Korea was, you know, basically where Seoul is now. Um, uh, American gunboat is heading up, uh, a bunch of gunboats are heading up the Han River and, you know, they're saying, go away don't stay here, they fire shot across the bow, and then there's a war, right? Little tiny war, but it, there's a war. and A little known war, yeah. Yeah, um, and the, the thing that is so interesting is that if the United States had known the history, and they're looking back on it now, you know, it had known the history of the area, that, you know, China is uh, the opponent of Japan, Japan's the opponent of China, and Korea is like a, what the, the Japanese say, Korea is a dagger in the hand of China pointing at Japan, right? And if you look at the map, it is. It is pointing right at Japan. And so the, Korea had gone for this isolationist policy. We don't want to deal with anybody. Nobody. We don't trade with you. We don't trade with you. We're all here. We're the hermit kingdom, right? And up the river comes this gunboat. They don't want to be involved, but it just can't be stopped, right? It's the forces of 
ignorance, you know, of what's, what, what the culture is about and, you know, the forces of greed, which is, you know, open up that trade route, um, clashing. Any plans for a show on First, first Contact? contact. Um, well, you know, we did the, the one we called Globalization Unto Death, which was about Magellan's expedition, which really is like Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the funny thing about your Korean example you just used is you could take the words Korea out there and put the words Japan in there, and the story is exactly the same. Exactly. Um, Japan. Uh, I, there's so many good stories about First Contact. Uh, we did one on the peoples of the steppe, you know, everyone from the mm. Turks to the Mongols to the Huns to the Scythians, all those. And, that's, and we, we portrayed that as imagine if you went to another planet and encountered this weird, barbarous people. And we tried to do that to give you an example of what it must have felt like for people like the Romans when they first ran into the Huns. Because it didn't even look like people from our planet. That was a, you know, the, one of the things that we miss as modern people that people from, you know, the, the long past got to do routinely is have these first contact moments. I mean, we're lucky if we see some pygmies from a tribe that's never been discovered before. Um, as a matter of fact, when I did that show, that globalization show, somebody sent me a story that was that I was previously unaware of, that there's an island, I think it's an island, off the coast of India, little teeny place, where the people have remained not undiscovered, but anytime anyone goes there, they get killed by the locals. And there was a story recently where some people in a boat were drifting. You know, it was one of those boats that has a couple of fishermen on it. Landed on this island, and the natives come out with little teeny cane bows and arrows and shoot them. And the Indian government sent a helicopter over, and they start shooting at the helicopter with their little bows and arrows. And I thought, God, it's interesting to see that there's still a few places that can have that sort of first contact moments. And I think the only kind that could, because everybody else has accepted it. Well, I think the questions you know that you have to ask about that is, you know, if you find if we found a brand new people today, would we would we ever leave them alone? Is that even an option? And um, your point about the opening of Korea, the opening of Japan was the same way. Japan said go away, and uh, uh, Commodore Perry and the U.S. fleet said no. You don't have the option to not be a part of the world. And I think that was the whole point of that podcast, where we said, you know, do people have an option to opt out? And uh, I think with your first contact question, so, so yeah, we have done first contact stories. I think that's one of the most interesting things in all history is to run into new peoples and cultures and ways of life that you haven't seen before. Wasn't that the whole point of National Geographic to begin with? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, lo- I love the first con- the first contact concept. Uh, here's a here's another question, sort of out of left field. Uh, you uh, play any Sid Meier Civilization? Oh yeah, that's that was one of the great games of all time, wasn't it? It is, it is, it is one of the greatest games of all time. I, I just, uh, you know, the counterfactuals question is, you know, how could things have been different? So uh, every time I play Civilization, I try different strategies. You know, uh, expansionist or contractionist, or uh, you know, you know, you've got all the different political uh, persuasions you can stick with and. I love how that they they meter in all the you know communism gives you this this and this but it limits you here, and democracy gives you this this and this but it limits it, it limits you here. What I don't think people really understand if, unless they're old enough is that you know before we had computers we used to play all those you know you would have called civilization a war game even though it doesn't 
meet the strict definition. And we used to play all, all those things on boards. Or I mean, Civilization, believe it or not, it wasn't Sid Meier's version, but there was a game called Civilization that was a board game that we used to play in the late 70s. Um, that had a similar sort of an approach. I mean, it obviously couldn't have been as detailed. But, you know, you can't make um, board game mechanisms that are as deep as the computer ones because then you end up screwing up the fun of the game. But, but the whole idea was basically the same. Start your own civilization, build it from scratch, and then the decisions that you make sort of get to determine how your culture develops and expands. But, you know, what's so different about that, but it's also part of the counterfactual fun, is, you know, in a real civilization... You know, Jesse Willis gets to be the leader of the civilization for a, you know, portion of one person's lifetime, and then it transfers to another person who may not have the same sort of outlook or approach at all. And so civilizations kind of move by fits and starts and backwards two steps and forwards three steps. But what if a person had an unlimited lifetime? You know, the Spartans used to say, there was a Spartan king who said that one of the greatest things of all is to have a whole state directed by the will of one person. You know, the, the whole, because you get the whole, you know, it, 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 it's, you don't get the chaos that something like, for example, the U.S. policy has or most modern countries' policy has. You get to be directed by one will and all effort. You know, Hitler was like this. All effort from, from the mass of all these people's work and, and, and progress and money and everything is directed towards solid individual goals. Um, it's interesting to think if you could have a person with a 10,000-year lifespan and an agenda in stone, you know, what they could do if, if life after life after life they were pursuing those goals with, you know, with ruthless ambition. That's, that's what civilization allows you to do, is to be the omnipotent god-king forever. And you could say, okay, in a thousand years I'll have that territory I've really been wanting to have, you know. A I, I think it's kind of funny, too, that it, it, this, this quote probably comes... Uh, uh, you know, it, he's he's talking about the other king because Sparta has two kings. Right? Yes, uh, it's uh, he's probably you know saying if we only had just me, yes. get rid of that guy, <laughs> everything would be perfect. That's right. <laughs> Normally, when people get into a job, right, they 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 have a title, and then they know from that title what they can do. They can go look up the job. They probably know what the job is, but. Um, podcaster is not very specific as to what uh, what you do because there's a thousand different kinds of podcasts and you know you know talk show radio host is kind of what you do but really if you listen to your stuff it's not anything like uh talk show radio anymore um it's d variable length right you don't have a set length um it's very you know you say maybe it's going to come out in two weeks <laughs> there's no set schedule and you know you don't have the call in you it's really different. And well, you know, yeah. hardcore history hardcore history though is, is a perfect example because common sense I just took the radio show and adapted it for this medium. Hardcore history was came a couple years later when you looked at this blank canvas you have called the podcast and thought, Well, you know, I don't have the constraints I used to have in radio and if you took me out of radio and said, Do anything you want with no constraints, you know, what would you do? And so we Ben and I, if Ben exists, um, look at this. <laughs> look, look at this and said, "Well, you know, a lot of podcasters are just trying to figure out what they want to do. We have a little bit of an advantage because we started this so early and we had a career before this doing something similar that we can expand on this canvas in ways they might not be comfortable with yet." And hardcore history. I mean, if you look at the very first one we ever did, it was 15 minutes. It was a little strange, little ditty that bears little resemblance to what we have now. I always like to say that, um, you know, if you look at any TV series you like, 
it was not the same show, the first few shows of the series. You can go watch them, and it almost looks strange because it hadn't evolved into what it was going to be. Any podcast show is the same way. Now you look at the hardcore history thing, and it's the Smith Endeavor. I mean, I cannot tell you what goes into those things. Um, think of college term papers and final exams all yeah. into one. And, um, and yet, when we're done, I feel like, not arrogantly, but I mean, I feel like we've created something that's totally new media-wise. Because Absolutely. You, it's it's <laughs> nothing like anything else, really. You could not do that in radio, you know? Um, and so, now, I don't know that I know where it's going or anything like that, but, but the fact that you have this wonderful blank canvas that the podcast allows you to utilize and that international audience that we talked about earlier, um, you feel like, you know, if I had more time, I have five or six more, more ideas that come to you when you think, oh, God, you know what would be cool if you, if you did this with it or if you did that with it. And, and so from a creativity standpoint, I mean, I, was, I felt like I was burning out in radio by the time I started podcast. And podcast reinvigorated me because all the rules went away. Yeah, you, so, you get so, to determine yeah, everything, and there's can, no constraints. I can tell you how many times an interview just started to get interesting, and they say, "Well, that's it. See you later. That's all oh, we you have, have time for." Oh, you have to take commercial yeah, break, exactly, you know, that yeah. cuts off the line of thinking or whatever. Yeah. So I'll tell you what's different in radio. They used to tell you that you had to assume you were losing 20% of your audience every 15 minutes and gaining a new 20% every 15 minutes, which meant that all the time you have to restate you know, who you are, what you're talking about, who you're talking to, what's already been talked about, and that eats up a huge amount of the conversation and bores the people who were with you the whole time. With podcasts, you can safely assume that the person is still there five minutes later, you know, and you can you can just continue the straight, you know, stream of consciousness. You don't need yeah. the time and temperature either because they can listen to it at any time, anywhere. It's it's uh, it's it's not it's not radio. It's it's audio, but it's not radio. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.